And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. As an old journalist, I may be biased, but I believe with every fiber of my soul that journalism at its best is fundamental to a strong, functioning democracy. We can't rely solely on government or powerful institutions for absolute candor or even at times for the truth that citizens need and deserve to help make informed decisions. That's why I so admire Bart Gelman of The Atlantic, a brilliant writer, probing reporter, and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist who's for decades penetrated the veil of secrecy that too often hangs over Washington. He shocked many with a piece in September 2020 forecasting Donald Trump's feverish attempts to overturn the election, a piece that, in the rereading, appears eerily prophetic, and he recently published a sequel entitled Trump's Next Coup Has Already Begun. We sat down this week to talk about his reporting and the imminent threats to our democracy. Here's that conversation. Bart Gelman, it's it's good to see you. Happy New Year to you. Thanks for being here. My pleasure. I've been a fan of the show for a long time. Well, I appreciate that. Well, I've been a fan of yours, and I, I'm going to say what I say behind your back, which is journalism is so essential to democracy because it's how we shine bright lights into dark corners and give people some sense of what's going on in their own government. I mean, that's one of the main major functions. Nobody does it better than you. And we've got a lot to talk about in that regard. But how one becomes a preeminent investigative journalist in America is a, is a, is an investigation I want to pursue right now for a few minutes here and ask you a little bit about yourself and your, uh, and your upbringing. You're from the Philadelphia area. That's right. And tell me about your folks, because, I, you, you know, I, I read all this interesting stuff about, well, both of them, but your dad in particular, that made me think, aha, maybe this is how Gelman started getting interested in journalism. Well, um, my, my dad started off as a journalist. Uh, he worked for the old Evening Bulletin in Philadelphia, which was the afternoon paper that long since ceased to exist. He walked away from journalism into uh, public relations and started up his own little firm. He, uh, he liked working for himself. I remember uh, one of my childhood memories is him taking a sledgehammer to the wall between the basement and the garage as he was uh, creating a little office in there. <laughs> I, I thought you were say, I thought you were going to say as, uh, as he got off the phone from a client who was really pissing him <laughs> off. But, uh... Did he inculcate you with a kind of interest in in uh, in journalism and news? Was that something that was prevalent in your home? I know your mom was a, a school teacher. My mom was a school teacher. She was a, a music teacher, and she was actually the one who was more involved in the news of the day and the political news. Uh, she uh, ran for and was elected a local committee woman at one point. Ah. Uh-huh. Uh, and, uh, you know, talked about the news of the day, uh, with us and, uh, just interested in the wider world. You obviously took to, to journalism because you became the editor of your high school newspaper. And I raised this not as a trivial matter, but there was a huge controversy surrounding your editorship. Uh, of that paper that sort of, I think, set the terms of your relationship with institutions uh, for the rest of your life. But you t- talk about that uh, and how you came to end up suing your school over their censorship of, of, your, uh, of your publication. So you've been doing your research, I see. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> I'm eager to see the pieces. But uh, yeah, anyway, go ahead. Look, go I ahead. mean, it was it it, it was uh, for a long time just sort of a raw raw uh, school rag, uh, the school paper, and I was interested in uh, an upgrade. I guess um, <laughs> this is all on account of having to try something new after I washed out of the gymnastics team. <laughs> I was really quite a bad gym- gymnast, it turned out. Uh, so I joined the paper. Uh, I became editor of the paper, and uh, 
found out about a summer internship or a summer enrichment program at Columbia Journalism School uh, for high school students and uh, went to that and came back all filled with ambition and uh, dreams of the First Amendment <laughs> and a desire to shake things up. So uh, we did a deliberately provocative uh, three-part series in the paper about uh, uh, teenage pregnancy and uh, the uh, phenomenon at our own school, which the principal uh, was not fond of. Uh, and she, uh, she warned us not to publish it, but uh, I had spent the whole summer before that school year selling ads so that we were independent and I, I purposely moved it to an outside printer so it wasn't printed in the school anymore, thinking, haha, that will make me immune from the principal's uh, objections. Uh, and uh, she just uh, sent an administrative aide over to the printer and seized all the papers and burned them. This this good preparation for covering autocracy, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there's there's no autocrat uh, greater than a an angry high school principal, <laughs> and her name was almost from a movie. Her name was Wacker, Doctor Wacker. Uh, <laughs> in any case, she fired me as the editor and locked me out of the office and uh, literally burned all the papers. And uh, my uh, co-editors and I brought a First Amendment lawsuit in federal court. Uh, this is at a time when the the big uh, precedent was a case called Tinker against Des Moines, which said that uh, the Constitution doesn't end at the schoolhouse gate. And uh, we were filled with youthful outrage. And, uh, <laughs> and there's nothing quite like that. But, Nothing uh, quite like that. Uh, yeah. That's the force against the uh, the high school principal. Uh, in any case, we ended up learning a uh, a lesson in uh, humility because lawsuits take a long time. And my senior year progressed, and college applications came, and uh, graduation came, and the case was still in the courts, and we ended up uh, winning a uh, favorable settlement when I was partway into my freshman year of college, uh, which said we could publish the stories. But the principal had waited us out. We were all gone. Uh, and uh, the new editor, who would have been appointed by the principal, uh, had no interest in publishing the story. So, <laughs> so uh, she had run out the clock very successfully, and she understood the power relationship much better than we did. Yeah. Uh, and that was it was a lesson to me. I mean, I've become interested in 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 power and its use and abuse over the years, uh, in large part because of that. I mean, I was lucky enough to have something happen to me young that forced me to think hard about what I cared about, and uh, definitely pushed me in the direction of journalism. You went to Princeton, and you didn't study journalism. You did journalism there, but you didn't study journalism. Did you know you were going to be a journalist? Yeah, it was my default from then on. I mean, I, I knew I was going to join the college paper, and I eventually became the editor of the college paper. And uh, every summer I spent uh, doing internships, uh, I, I spent time. And the great thing about journalism internships is you can be 19 or 20 or 21 and a uh, student just there for a couple of months, and you're still writing byline stories. And if you write a good enough story, it might end up on the front page. So I worked for the Miami Herald uh, and New Republic and National Journal. And uh, uh, I learned from professionals uh, sitting among them in the newsroom. I mean, I don't want to debase uh, journalism schools in any way. I think Journalism is one of those things that you learn best by doing and being among people who do it. Uh, and uh, those internships uh, were formative uh, for me as well. As I mentioned, you didn't study uh, journalism at college. You practiced it. You, uh, you studied uh, politics and, 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 uh, and, and government, and uh, you uh, 
uh, in the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. You went off and got uh, a you got a Rhodes Scholarship. You earned your master's degree in politics at Oxford, but all in service of writing? It really was. The, uh, the subject I chose for my master's thesis was uh, secrecy and national security. Uh, and that has been a professional uh, uh, preoccupation of mine ever since. Uh, and I did a lot of hard thinking about when it's appropriate to keep secrets and when it's not and why it's appropriate for journalists to try to find out things, even classified things, uh, and write about them. And you went to work for the Washington Post uh, in 1988 um, and uh, covered the courts for a while. I think you covered Marion Barry's uh, uh, trial, the former, or, or I guess he was, was he, was he, he was then mayor when he was on trial, wasn't he? Uh, he was, he was, yeah. he was the mayor. Uh, that was a wild ride, that trial. Yeah. It, I mean, it had everything, it had sex and drugs and, uh, was missing the rock and roll. I presume that this was sort of the apprenticeship that the Post had in mind before they moved you into the national security realm, but you covered the, the Gulf War, uh, and, uh, and then you moved to Jerusalem, and you were the Jerusalem correspondent for the Washington Post. And I raised that because you were there at a really, really uh, uh, historically important time when Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated uh, in the midst of trying to uh, promote peace with the Palestinians. They had signed this Oslo Accord, uh, which was a really breakthrough uh, agreement, and uh he was assassinated uh, by a young right-wing extremist who was opposed to to the peace process. Talk about that. I mean, I remember it so clearly, and and I have a specific reason I wanted to talk to you about. But talk to you about your memories of that and how momentous was that? Well, it's so interesting. It it it, it shows the uh, the danger of life as a foreign correspondent. I mean, the the, the danger of uh, of screwing up your uh, journalistic instincts when you when you first get to a place you're overwhelmed by how little you know uh and you, how you're trying to explain a foreign world to your readers uh while you're still trying to make some sense out of it and after about a year you start to think oh i i, I get this place uh, i understand and that's the most dangerous moment because you don't fully get it yet and uh the assassination came, if I'm not mistaken, from memory, uh, actually in 95. And uh, the uh, I'd been there for a year, and the right-wing settlers who were opposed to the peace process uh, were talking all the time about how there was going to be blood in the streets and civil war, and uh, it's everything's a, there's an expression in Hebrew that, you know, that's a... a revolution earthquake uh and it's all so overwrought that i started thinking of it all as as not meaningful it was uh, it was just symbolic and then someone comes along and sneaks up behind the prime minister and shoots three shots into his back and you realize oh they really meant it uh in fact i had interviewed the assassin yitzhak uh, sorry um yigalamir uh before the assassination I had found him at a settlement in the West Bank, and he talked to me about how uh, the government uh, was filled with traitors uh, and uh, had to be stopped. And again, I just saw this all as uh, as as just as sort of empty rhetoric, uh, and my spider sense didn't tingle at all. I didn't know that this guy already, when we were talking, had been stalking Rabin, had twice gone to places where he hoped to. Uh, find a shot at him and had, had not yet succeeded. Uh, but uh, I found the notebook afterward on the night of the assassination and was chilled to read those words. The reason I raise it is is twofold. One is the impact of, of political violence on a democracy and the notion uh, in the minds of those who commit the violence that that somehow that violence is legitimated by their commitment, uh, you know, to the to to in in this case, to, it was to Israel, uh, 
but you know that uh, that is is one element of this. The other is just how the act of one deranged person can change the course of history so profoundly. Uh, and I wanted to ask you whether you thought what what you thought would have happened had Rabin lived, because he, after he died, uh, Shimon Peres became prime minister of Israel, and he was defeated by Bibi Netanyahu, uh, and I'm, I'm, and that effectively ended the the process uh, that began in Oslo. Tell me what you think would have happened had Rabin survived. Would would the course of middle of the Middle East have changed? Uh, it's so hard to know these counterfactuals, but I I I think uh, that al- although the great man theory of history is often uh, criticized, uh, the loss of one man here did profoundly shift the course of events. Uh, there there was a moment in history when uh, both the Israelis and Palestinians were prepared uh, by slim majorities to accept half a loaf. They were prepared finally to reach a political settlement uh, with the uh, Oslo Accords and the progress toward peace. And they had this very strong, tough leader Mm -hmm. who had been associated all his career with military prowess and with crackdowns against terrorists and uh, you know, had famously said uh, during some of the earlier uh, uprisings, you know, you've got to break their arms, break their legs, show them who's boss. And now he was the one who was ready to make peace. And he was carrying the Israeli people along with him. He had a clear majority uh, and a very strong and passionate minority uh, that thought he was selling out the country. Uh, And if he had if he had lived, uh, I think there was a real chance that there could have been by now a, a side-by-side states sharing that space in the Middle East. Whenever I think of that, I think uh, when you and I were kids, uh, Robert Kennedy's assassination and how that might have changed the course of uh, history because he well may have been the nominee in 1968 here in the U.S., uh, I think had a, a good chance to defeat Nixon uh, probably would have ended the Vietnam War much sooner. No Watergate, <laughs> you know. Uh, I mean, it, it is stunning to think how these acts can can uh, can change history. You you came back uh, to the post uh, to the states for the post uh, covered uh, covered uh, Madeleine Albright, the Secretary of State covered uh, uh, efforts to disarm Iraq, early efforts to disarm Iraq. And then you moved to New York to do special projects. And you were in New York uh, on 9-11. And uh, you were out on the streets and you were covering. Tell me about that experience. Because that also is a formative experience in your trajectory. It was. It was... uh momentous for me as it was for uh, so many millions of others. I was sitting in my New York apartment and uh, I had to find out that a plane had hit the World Trade Center uh, from my editor who called me up and said, you know, a plane's just hit the World Trade Center. Uh, you better go find out what's going on down there. And at first it was going to be a, a terrible plane crash story. Uh, and uh, I grabbed a notebook and a water bottle and uh camera i think and uh and this had become you know sort of rushing toward disaster had become a familiar instinct um in the jerusalem job where i'd covered so many terrorist attacks and i started trying to head downtown and i thought to myself uh well how do i want to move uh in the city right now i'm i'm uh I don't know, uh, seven or eight miles uptown of uh, where the thing just happened. Um, I decided I did not want to get on the subway because I was afraid it would I'd get caught down there yeah. and uh, and stuck. Uh, I, uh, I I I grabbed a uh, cab and cab said I'm not driving down to a plane crash, uh, but I said just go down as far as you're willing to go, 
then I got out and uh, literally just took all the bills out of my wallet and started waving them at drivers to see who would drive me a little further. Uh, and when that stopped working, um, I'm still too far away. And I've, I stood in the middle of the street and I flagged down a motorcycle. Uh, and I, I held out my press card as though that somehow gave me authority. <laughs> and uh, I asked this great big, huge bearded guy, uh, would you take me down that way? If, if you're going that way, would you take me down there? And he was going because he was a tourist and he wanted to uh, go snap pictures. Uh, and that was fine with me. So I finally made my way down to the scene. By that time, uh, one of the towers was gone. And my mind, I, I hadn't heard the news while I was driving down. It, it, my mind couldn't cope with the idea that one of the towers was gone. Uh, I saw a burning tower and I thought the other one must be from my perspective behind it. Uh, I didn't understand what was going on. And I finally got uh, within a few blocks. And uh, while I watched, the second tower uh, crumbled. Did you realize at that moment, did you say to yourself, this is a terrorist attack? Oh, yeah. As soon as I saw that it was both buildings, uh, that's no coincidence. Uh, and I had been covering national security. I'd been, I, I was well aware of Al-Qaeda, which uh, three years before had done coordinated attacks against American embassies in Africa. And I assumed, as most U.S. government um, intelligence analysts assumed right away that it was an al-Qaeda operation. And how did, that, how did that shift your focus? Because you very much began covering the war that followed. And, you know, this very much led you into that, your, your fundamental focus about secrecy, national security, the whole WMD story. Talk a little bit about, about where, what, how your life changed the day those buildings uh, went down? Well, you know, I'd been in the middle of a long project on uh, bail bondsmen and bounty hunters, uh, which was uh, interesting, and I never came back to it. Uh, I never wrote this series. Uh, I moved immediately to covering uh, what George W. Bush had just declared as a war on terrorism. And my first question uh, that I worked out with my editors was, if, if there's a war on terrorism, what did it look like before 9-11? What did it look like before the planes um, hit the Pentagon and went down in Pennsylvania and hit the World Trade Center? Uh, and it turned out there had been a behind-the-scenes uh, quiet war that was little known, primarily taking place in secret spaces and in the intelligence world and the world of special operations that had been uh, going on um, all the way through the Clinton administration. And so I was looking at what was the war uh, in, in the uh, couple of years before 9-11 and in the first eight or nine months of the Bush presidency, what was Bush doing then and what were his people doing? And it was, uh, it, it, it turned out a lot of evidence that they had not done enough. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. And now, back to the show. And then came the war in Iraq. Uh, first Afghanistan, but then Iraq. That was predicated on... on uh, the the uh, allegation that uh, Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and that it was uh, essential to get them. Um, were you were you suspicious of that claim? And what did you learn about sort of what, what? How did your understanding of secrecy in national security? How was that burnished by your experience in examining that issue and in covering the war itself? Well. The biggest lesson for me was uh, that empirical facts really matter in journalism. Uh, and it's fine to have instincts, but it's really important uh, to be open to evidence and find out that your instincts aren't true. Mm -hmm. uh, because I had covered uh, the uh, weapons of mass destruction uh, debate in about Iraq uh, long before 9-11. 
back in the 90s, at, around the time of the first Gulf War, when the UN Commission, uh, then known as uh, UNSCOM, was uh, convinced that Iraq had undeclared stocks of uh, chemical and biologic weapons and missile programs. So when the uh, momentum began toward war with Iraq, I believed it was likely that Iraq did in fact still have weapons of mass destruction. What I credit myself with is doing the reporting and the observations uh, and, and, and the hard journalistic work of convincing myself and finding out that uh, those suspicions were not true. Do you think the administration knew that the, su the suspicions were untrue? I mean, did we go to war on a, on a false uh, on a false premise? I I I think uh, the the answer is mixed on that one. Uh, as for biological and chemical weapons, it was uh, almost consensus in the intelligence community and and among many of America's allies that a Iraq still had explaining to do, that it, it probably still had undeclared stocks of, uh, of things like uh, mustard and uh, possibly even uh, the advanced mm -hmm. nerve agent VX. Uh, th there were legitimate suspicions about that. The nuclear program, however, had been completely dismantled uh, after the first Gulf War. And uh, there was uh, almost no evidence uh, that Iraq had an ongoing nuclear weapons program or nuclear uh, enrichment of, of uranium. Uh, it had no plutonium program. Uh, and there was good evidence, which I turned up, that was all classified, uh, that the um, Iraqi program was dead. Uh, and because nuclear weapons have such a fearsome uh, emotional impact, the idea of a mushroom cloud became uh, became the Bush administration's big selling point for a war against Iraq. They they, they claimed completely falsely uh, that there was evidence of an Iraqi uh, nuclear program, and this was driven uh, primarily by Dick Cheney, uh, who you wrote extensively uh, about, including a book. Why did you focus so intensely on Cheney? Because I care about power and accountability for those in power, and Cheney was this irresistible target uh, because everyone understood that he was a very powerful vice president, uh, probably the most powerful vice president we've ever had in terms of influence on policy, uh, and yet he was by far the most secretive person in government, the most secretive vice president we'd ever had. He liked working behind the scenes. Uh, he liked working so you don't even see what he's doing. Uh, and that was an irresistible target, and uh, uh, it was also it was also a little bit of a daunting target because uh, everything was so well hidden uh, with Cheney, and it was so hard to penetrate what was happening in that office. So I actually resisted uh, doing a long term project on Cheney at first. I thought it might be too hard to get, uh, and uh, Len Downey, the executive editor of the Washington Post at the time sat me down one day and said, we really need you to do this. Uh, this is in your wheelhouse. Uh, this guy's important. We aren't penetrating. Uh, you're our best shot at this. Uh, we're going to team you up with Joe Becker, and uh, and uh, you're going you're gonna to set off in earnest. And I said, okay, boss. What were your thoughts when Dick Cheney walked out on the floor of the house with his daughter, Liz, who's leading the charge in many ways against Trump's incursions on democracy. And, and there's Dick Cheney, who was the bete noir of uh, Democrats throughout his, his uh, tenure as vice president, uh, Darth Vader. Uh, and he's surrounded by Nancy Pelosi and others. Uh, well, you must have had some complicated feelings about that. It was quite a sight. It was remarkable to see the embrace of the Democratic establishment uh, for a guy who had been uh, truly uh, the the villain in their narrative of the world for so many years, and a guy who was just clearly responsible with for for uh, uh, some of the uh, morally uh, most damaging policies, um, in, including torture, and who had been uh, principal driver. Uh, 
of the greatest strategic mistake of uh, uh, arguably uh, any president in a long time, which was the Iraq War. Uh, but one of the themes of my book on Dick Cheney uh, is that he was a true believer. Uh, he he was prepared to lie uh, if necessary, as he thought it uh, to to get his way to uh, in the world. But he believed in the worldview that he espoused, and he believed in the Constitution as he read it. Uh, and he was a zealot on those things. And when uh, Trump came along and took control of the Republican Party, and uh, all of the Republican establishment wound up bowing down before him, uh, the Cheneys did not. Uh, because they are true believers. And uh, fortunately for us, one of their true beliefs is that the American constitutional system of alternating in power and peaceful transfer of power and honoring elections was part of their worldview. You don't see inconsistency, and I'm not suggesting there is, between him being on the floor at that memorial service on January 6th and uh, his robust uh, uh tactics as vice president uh, and pension for secrecy? I, I, I think it was all of a piece. Uh, I mean, he was a Republican partisan as much as anyone and played hardball, uh, absolutely played hardball, you know, as much or more than uh, Mitch McConnell. Uh, but he does have certain principles, uh, certain core beliefs, and uh, he loathed loathes Trump uh, and all the Trumpism stands for. And although he didn't say much uh, about that during the uh, Trump years in power, um, he he let it be known uh, that he was not on that team. Uh, and when push came to shove and we had January 6th and we had an actual attempt by an American president to overthrow an election and prevent the peaceful transfer of power, uh, Cheney knew where he stood and, and was willing to say so. I just have to ask you about one other very intriguing figure with whom you were associated professionally, uh, and 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 that is uh, Edward Snowden. Uh, you were the reporter who uh, was the recipient. Uh, you were approached uh, about handling uh, the material that he uh, uh, took from the stole, really, from the NSA uh, that revealed this vast. Uh, apparatus uh, to uh, uh, to collect uh, data about uh, Americans uh, and others around the world, uh, but uh, uh, tell tell me uh, just very briefly um, about that experience and about Snowden and how you feel about uh, the the. Uh, I mean, there are people who you probably respect and know who, who say, look, the guy did tremendous damage uh, to this country, outed uh, intelligence operations around the world, put people in jeopardy, Americans and others. Uh, and there are others who say he, he is a hero. Um, talk to me about Edward Snowden and your experience with him. This was like my graduate thesis come to life. This was... Uh direct conflict between uh, national security secrecy with legitimate secrets in some cases uh, and the ability of a self-governing people in democracy to hold their own government to account. Uh, the question is, can the government hold secrets from the people uh, about the way it's spying on them? Uh, can the government spy on uh, its citizens without telling them, uh, without telling them that this is uh, this is something they regard as essential for for security? Now, the national security establishment, the national security agency, uh, I thought were uh, sincere in their belief that they needed all these programs in order to safeguard the American people, but they weren't telling us, uh, and. Uh, I believed that uh, it was simply not tolerable in a democracy to have the government spying on the people uh, uh, without informed consent. And so I thought there were a great many things in the Snowden documents, and he gave me tens of thousands of documents, 
there were many things in there that the American people had to know, had to be told. Uh, I also thought there were many things in there that should not be disclosed, and I did not disclose them. And I kept, uh, I took enormous precautions so that uh, the documents would not leak. But I have no doubt there was some damage done. I, I think in a, in a democracy, you know, JFK did not say uh, we will uh, make no sacrifice and uh, and bear no cost in defense of liberty. He said the opposite. Uh, sometimes you have to accept trade-offs between security and self-government, and this was one of those times. You must have had some really... Um interesting conversations with the government, uh, you and, uh, and Marty Perrin, the editor of the Washington Post, uh, who of, of spotlight fame, uh, probably the best guy to have in your corner in those situations. But what were those conversations like? You know, they varied from uh, civil adult conversations uh, in which there would be uh, some senior member of the government who would who would say, uh, we understand why you think this is newsworthy, and we understand that we can't stop you from publishing uh, any of it, uh, but we especially care about this and this and this, uh, and blowing those secrets would be enormously damaging for these reasons. And even there were times when a government official, and this is not a, uh, unique in my career. There were times when an official would tell me something that I did not know uh, off the record to explain why I should not publish something that I did know. And uh, there were times when that was uh, very persuasive. When I said, oh, well, if those are the stakes, then I understand perfectly why that should not be published. There were also sometimes very angry conversations uh, where, uh, you know, in some of these stories, the government would say, you know, I'm not going to confirm or deny uh, that this is true. Um, if it is true and you publish it, uh, we're going to report that as a uh, as a uh, potential crime to the Justice Department and go to hell. It was emotional on both sides. There must have been moments of self doubt on your part. Uh, you did you lay awake at night questioning yourself about where the line should be. This was by far the most stressful time in my career as a journalist. Um, I, I questioned myself all the time. I, I did worry a lot uh, that I would accidentally uh, expose some secret that uh, had consequences um, I couldn't imagine. Uh, there clearly were lives at stake in some cases. I mean, I had the identities and photographs of uh, clandestine agents who were doing very dangerous work for the NSA around the world, uh, positioning listening devices, and I would never have considered publishing those. And yet, at the same time, the U.S. government was tracking the telephone calls of every single American, you know, local, national, and international calls, and drawing a gigantic social network of all of our connections with one another. Uh, and that was simply unacceptable. Uh, that was simply completely out of bounds, as I understood any theory of democracy, to do that without telling us. You are uh, married to a fine journalist uh, in her own right, Daphna Linzer, who you met, I think, working together on, on stories. Uh, on WMD, uh, in fact, yes. Uh, and you have four kids. Did, were there times when you worried that, that you might be held criminally responsible and that you you might that you might be prosecuted and, and jailed for this what the lawyers told me was that no journalist had ever been prosecuted up until that time for finding out a national security secret and publishing it and that there was a relatively low probability uh, but not zero probability risk of criminal prosecution what was much more likely was that in the course of prosecuting Snowden, that the government would demand that I testify and turn over documents, and that if I uh, did not cooperate and I had made the decision I would not cooperate, that I could be held in contempt of court and put in jail until I complied. That, we thought, was much more probable, and I, I worried a lot about that. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files.
And now, back to the show. So let's talk about where we are today. So you went to work at The Atlantic in 2020, and uh, the uh, premise when they hired you was that you were going to focus on the uh, policymaking around the pandemic, in part because you, you had done quite a bit of reporting in the uh, early 2000s on uh, on uh, AIDS and policymaking around that. And uh, so I'm sure that was part of their their thing, but you very quickly gravitated to another story, uh, which is around concerns that you've now famously raised about Trump and democracy. What what caused you to gravitate to that story? Uh, was was there a particular moment when you said, "Hey, this is the story I have to write"? I came with the full intention of uh, of delving into the pandemic. And delving into the uh, national and global policymaking around the pandemic, which was a mess. And I don't know, it, it, I, I had one of these instincts uh, that I was missing the bigger story. Uh, in fact, I remember uh, noticing that COVID was going to play a role in the election, uh, that uh, there would have to be changes made in the manner of conducting the presidential election because of the pandemic. And I came to see that that was going to be used as an excuse uh, for uh, for uh, voter suppression uh, and and hijinks in the in the rules of elections. And it just became clear to me that the threat to our democracy was the much bigger story right now and one that I was positioned, to work on. And I had conversations with Jeff Goldberg, the editor of The Atlantic, in which we agreed I was going to shift gears and, and focus full time on uh, the threat to democracy. You know, we all heard Trump for months before the election talk about the fact that the election would be rigged, that it would be fraudulent. Um, in fact, I wanted to read something to you that I think was sort of telling, which is a, um, <clears throat> a quote that... Uh, Leslie Stahl from 60 Minutes ascribed to Trump before the before he took office in 2016. You're nodding your head, so you're familiar with it. And she asked him why he's always attacking the press. And he said, you know why I do it? I do it to discredit you all and demean you all. So when you write negative stories about me, no one will believe you. In a sense, he took the same approach to the election, that either he was going to win or he was going to... Uh, discredit the election so no one would believe or at least his supporters would not believe uh, the results and he started that project well before uh, the election but no one uh, I think uh, sounded the alarm as loudly as you did you wrote a piece on September 23rd of 2020 and part of what you said was the worst case uh, however and this before the election it's not that Trump rejects the election outcome the worst case is that he uses his power to prevent a decisive outcome against him if Trump sheds all restraint and if his Republican allies play the parts he assigns them he could obstruct the emergence of a legally unambiguous victory for Biden in the electoral college and then in Congress uh he could prevent the formation of consensus about whether there's any outcome at all uh he could seize on that uncertainty to hold on to power I mean, in retrospect, that was prescient. At the time, I think uh, there were those who said, "Well, this seems overwrought." Yeah, there were there were people who who thought that I was uh, spinning out uh, doomsday scenarios that weren't justified, and I hoped that they were right. Uh, I I didn't think so, but this was this was really unusual work for me. Uh, nothing in my career prepared me to write about the future as much as I did in that piece, um, forecasting, uh, because it's not empirical. There's, there's no way to know for sure. But what I saw was potential. Uh, what we all saw openly from Trump was the, the clear statement before the election, uh, even at the nominating convention for the Republican Party, uh, that there is no way that I could lose the election unless there's cheating. Uh, the only outcome is that 
that I win, the American people will choose me. If they don't, uh, it means the election was rigged. Now, that's an extraordinary thing for um, any politician to say, uh, let alone a sitting president. And I came to believe that under no circumstances, literally under no circumstances, would Trump concede defeat if Biden won. Uh, and then I decided to do a lot of reporting around what would it mean to have a president who refuses to concede defeat in an election? Uh, what could he do if he pulled out all the stops? And I walked through those scenarios, having uh, done a lot of digging with constitutional scholars uh, and uh, uh, political experts who could tell me, well, uh, he could try to uh, cause the state legislators uh, in in uh, in in close swing states that Biden wins, uh, and that those legislatures are uh, are controlled by Republicans. He could try to persuade those state houses to appoint electors for Trump, even though Biden had won the votes in that state. Uh, and I found uh, people, I found senior Republicans in Pennsylvania who were even willing to talk to me about that scenario as something that they'd considered. Uh, and so it was basically starting with a known proposition uh, that that Trump is not going to concede and drawing out what were the implications. You've since written another piece that in December, and its title was Trump's Next Coup Has Already Begun. You cite what we now all see. I think I saw a poll today that had 72, 73% of Republicans saying Biden did not win legitimately. Uh, that has taken root. One of the interesting things in your piece was um, uh, some research that was done by uh, a colleague of mine at the University of Chicago, Robert Pape, uh, about the people who participated in the insurrection at the Capitol. And it was surprising because it wasn't the roster uh, just of, of proud boys and oath keepers, but a lot of sort of everyday Americans who came to believe what Trump was telling them. And I thought of you because of all the work you had done on terrorism, on the process of it, and of radicalization. These people were radicalized by Trump to believe that their patriotic duty was to be at that Capitol and stop that count. Well, that's exactly right. And uh, they did not look like uh, domestic extremists uh, of years past. I mean, for many years, and this pattern holds true all around the world. It holds true in, in uh, you know, East Timor and uh, the Mideast, as well as in the United States. Political violence is conducted by young men in their 20s uh, of low education uh, and uh, high unemployment. Uh, that's the typical profile, and it's been true for uh, a long time all around the world. Uh, and if you look at the uh, January 6th insurgents and those who, uh, now more than 700 people who have been arrested for those crimes, uh, their median age is 42, which is crazy, uh, completely out of sync with uh, precedent. Uh, they are middle class, employed, educated, white collar, uh, and uh, many of them are business owners. Uh, some of them have been government officials. Some of them have been uh, members of the military. Uh, only one in seven are affiliated with an extremist group like the Proud Boys or the Oath Keepers or the Three Percenters, uh, but they sympathize. And the catastrophe of Trump is that he has persuaded for real uh, two-thirds to three-quarters of all Republicans uh, that an American election was stolen, that there is a man who is in the White House by fraud He's an imposter. He is not the person uh, who the American people voted for. And that is, of course, entirely made up and nonsense and disproved every every scrap of so-called evidence that Trump and his people uh, put forward uh, for, for, for this proposition has been disproved. Uh, but the volume of propaganda and the closed world of propaganda that uh, that is informing the uh, these Republican voters um, has turned them against their own uh, constitutional political system.
And when you believe something like that, it does legitimate extreme actions. 40% of Republicans in a post poll just recently said that, um, you know, armed resistance to the government may be necessary uh, in the future. There are, well, it's, it's a pape found. He tried to ask the question more and more sharply as time went on to try to, to try to, uh, uh, discount for people who were just big talkers, um, or who might, can, who thought it might one day be acceptable to use violence. And he finally found that there were the equivalent of 21 million Americans, um, who believed both that, uh, Biden was an illegitimate president and that the use of force right now is justified uh, to restore Trump to power. That's a lot of people. You know, I had uh, on the podcast last week, Representative Raskin, Jamie Raskin, uh, who said, you know, political scientists tell us that the uh, predicate for a, a successful coup is an unsuccessful coup because the coup plotters can have a chance to examine where the weaknesses are in their efforts and and do something about them. In your piece, you suggest that's exactly what Trump is up to. And we saw a piece in the Post the other day about 163 people running for offices that have to do election administration who believe the big lie about the last election. Um, you, you believe, as the title of your piece uh, suggests, that that is exactly what Trump and his supporters are up to. Well, that's right. There's no single referee um, in an American presidential election, which surprises people when they find out. I mean, normally you would think there's a winner and a loser. Somebody gets to declare that uh, and the loser goes home. Uh, but our system is uh, complicated and decentralized. And so there are a lot of people who have a say in who won and who lost uh, as part of their authority. And the Trump operation and those who sympathize with him have gone around systematically and looked at every every place in the system that thwarted Trump in his first attempt to overthrow an election. Every Brad Raffensperger, Raffensperger in, in Georgia, um, every Michigan uh, uh, appointed c- commission member who said, no, we're not changing the results. Uh, yes, Biden won uh, around the country and are systematically uh, pulling them out by their roots. And they are driving them out of office or they are running uh, uh, big lie candidates to, uh, to defeat them at the next election, or they are changing the law so that those people no longer have the power to certify an election. Uh, they, are, they are trying to fix the counting of the votes next time. Uh, so that um, if voter suppression doesn't work uh, and if uh, accusations of cheating don't work, that the people in charge of doing the actual counting uh, in enough swing states will be loyal to Trump and prepared to put their thumb on the scale. You've said that uh, you didn't think that people were taking this threat seriously enough. You heard the president's speech this week uh, in Atlanta uh, and it kind of conflates a, a number of things. Uh, less the you know some of it is this, the, these issues that you're raising. Some of it has to do with voter uh, uh, voter suppression uh, and voting rights. What would taking it seriously look like? Well, one thing it would look like would be the president um, using the bully pulpit uh, consistently uh, to show that his first priority right now and into the months ahead is going to be addressing this threat to, to democracy. He said in July in Philadelphia uh, that uh, the Republican efforts to subvert election machinery uh, was the greatest threat to democracy since the, the Civil War. Uh, that's very strong words, but he then uh, went silent on the subject uh, for the next you know four, five, six months, uh, and he came back yesterday with a very strong speech. Uh, he's given uh, 60 uh, speeches uh, solely about COVID. He's given 40 about Build Back Better and the infrastructure bill. He's given two so far on democracy. Yeah. I mean, isn't that partly because that's what people are struggling with right now, the economy, 
uh, and this virus, and that's front and center in their lives. I mean, that's part of the nature of politics. But beyond the speeches, what do you think should be done? Because I'm I'm wrestling with this. He's got this quandary. <laughs> you know, he's got a Senate with a filibuster rule. What should be done? So it's a huge question, and it's a legitimate question, and it's the logical question to ask a guy who has written that there's a profound threat to uh, democracy in this country. And it's not really my role. I mean, thank God for the country that I'm not in charge of problem solving because no one elected me to that. And uh, I wouldn't be as, uh, any better at that than anyone else you picked off the street. Uh, I do think that small D Democrats have to pay as much attention to the levers of power uh, in election administration as the Republicans are now paying. Uh, they are making it a... Uh, uh, driving organizing force mm -hmm. to take over this machinery. And right now, Democrats are standing by and watching it with uh, sort of jaws hanging open and not, by and large, doing very much about it. But I do know that any president as experienced as Biden knows what it looks like when a president has decided to marshal his resources and his administration in service of a grave threat to democracy, the gravest since the Civil War, they will know how to find other things to do about it um, if that's, in fact, the way they're treating it. I say this to you as someone who's been on the inside uh, of the White House. You'd be surprised about the limitations. You know, we all think about the power of the presidency. Uh, when you're there, you uh, become very aware of the limitations of it, particularly in a deeply divided country. One of the, one of the issues is the more he leans in, the more it serves Trump's project and, the, and his uh, acolytes project of depicting all these efforts as partisan. That essentially, you know, Trump, he promotes a Hunger Games view of the universe of the world where, uh, you know, nothing's on the legit. So it's a very challenging thing. But there is one thing that is in your, in your expertise and wheelhouse, and that is uh, what the Justice Department is doing. Do you think that, I mean, you heard what Merrick Garland said, that they're pr proceeding in a responsible way here uh, and uh, going to follow the trail. Do you think the Justice Department is doing enough? Well, this reminds me of the point that Jamie Raskin made, uh, that uh, uh, the gravest danger sign of a successful coup is a prior failed coup. And uh, that is especially true if the failed coup goes unpunished. If all we get out of January 6th, and it's not just January 6th, I mean, January 6th was, was a catastrophe and was an, a singular event uh, of, of a violent sacking of the Capitol and an attempt by force uh, to prevent the certification of a presidential election. But it was part of uh, and an integral part of a systematic campaign to overthrow the vote. Uh, and no one has been held accountable uh, for that. It, it, it can't be that no crime is committed uh, when, uh, when a p group of people at the very top of the American government uh, conspire to prevent the lawfully elected president from taking power. Uh, and as far as we know from any public hint, uh, the Justice Department is not doing anything about that. Now, there may be some secret grand jury uh, and a an exceptionally well-kept secret investigation uh, of Trump and, and his top lieutenants for the attempt to, to overthrow uh, the results of an election. Uh, but I tend to think we would have heard something about it. And in fact, that there would have been, for example... Uh, conflicts uh, erupting uh, between the Justice Department investigation and the congressional investigation because there are people uh, who want to take the fifth before Congress. And uh, that could be cured by giving them immunity. And normally the Justice Department, if it was doing an investigation, would have strong views about whether to give somebody immunity or not. Uh, we're not hearing of that kind of conflict. And uh, I fear that Merrick Garland... Um, has not taken uh, accountability for what happened in the last election seriously enough on, on a uh, criminal basis.
You mentioned Pape's research and your deep research, and and everyone should read this piece, Trump's Next Coup Has Already Begun, because you reported broadly and spoke to a lot of people who really animate this Pape's research in some ways. How do you think those people would react and the 40% who say they, they may have to take up arms? What would it look like if, in fact, Trump were indicted? Well, that's a huge uh, question. That would be a, a huge event in American history. The, you could look at this 40% as dry kindling. Uh, they are angry. They are convinced. And this is, by the way, in counterpoint uh, to the bulk of, of uh, Republican elected officials who know perfectly well that Biden won the election. Yes. Uh, uh, but their supporters don't. Uh, the people I was talking to were the true believers uh, who would bet their lives uh, that the election had been stolen. Uh, and they're waiting for a spark, this this massive dry kindling, and they will know what to do the next time Trump summons them. Uh, and uh, if he's indicted... That's kind of a blowtorch, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it's, it, it's scary. Did you think that is something that, that Garland should or or is considering should be or is considering what the impact of such a, a an indictment would be well there was a really interesting uh debate uh before biden took office uh between uh two very smart people jack goldsmith and bob bauer yes uh about whether uh it was a good idea or not a good idea to hold trump accountable for his crimes with an indictment uh and uh Goldsmith's argument, uh, although he believes Trump... Uh, he was in the he, Justice Department in the uh, Bush administration. Bob Bauer was, was the uh, White House counsel for Barack Obama. Exactly. And they did a book together. The Goldsmith argument was, don't indict Trump because, first of all, the way he operates, like on Mafia Don, the, the evidence is always going to be indirect and circumstantial, and uh, the cases are going to be relatively hard to prove. Uh, the political turmoil uh, it would create is too great. It would overwhelm the entire Biden presidency. Uh, it would suck all the oxygen out of everything else that Biden wants to do. What was Bauer's response? Bauer's response was that it is unacceptable uh, to allow uh, so many grave crimes to go unpunished that it uh, it it pr- promotes the idea that the president actually is above the law. Uh, and that we can't afford as a country uh, to let him get away with it. Just to finish, you're on this beat now, clearly. Are you continuing to do reporting on this story? Are you going to write a book about it? What can we expect from you in the uh, coming months? I have no book plans, but I am going to stay with this theme, with this, with the threat to democracy. And uh, I would imagine that there will be uh, a number of uh, individual stories and uh, quite likely a part three, if you conceive of the September 2020 piece and the December 2021 piece as sort of parts one and two, um, there'll be another big picture look at that uh, probably around the time of, of the midterm elections. When I called you about doing this podcast, I told you that you had scared the hell out of me so I can scarcely wait for your next piece. But uh, but I'm I'm really grateful that you are you're on the beat and for all the work that you've done. As I said, journalism a big big part of journalism is to uh, shine a bright light in dark corners. You've done that so well on so many important issues with I think a, a great sense of responsibility. So congratulations on that and thank you for your work and for sitting with me now. Oh, well, thank you for a remarkably good set of podcasts that I think I think that you're, you're in the very tip top handful of interviewers on the planet. Even guests of yours who I've heard many times elsewhere always uh, shed some new light when they talk to you. So uh, keep up yours. Thanks, Bart. I appreciate that. And we'll we will stay in close touch. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. Brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, 
including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.